0: Threats from the cybersphere have already prompted New Zealand to set up a security program run by the GCSB to defend against advanced cyber attacks. This Radio New Zealand Insight program has been speaking to security experts, spy agency and politicians to find out what danger New Zealand faces from the virtual world.
1: FAA okay, just issued a critical alert. The entire network went down.
2: Transportation systems crashing and they just hit the entire financial sector. That's a scene from Die Hard 4, a 2007 movie featuring an evil hacker who seizes control of computer systems in order to terrorize the people of the United States. But in the last decade, cyber warfare has jumped from fiction to reality.
1: Internet security agents say Iran's infrastructure, including its main nuclear power plant, is being targeted by a new and dangerously powerful cyberworm. The website of the Georgian parliament defaced with pictures of Hitler and shut down by a massive denial of service attack.
2: The so-called Syrian Electric Army says it's behind the hacking attack on the Associated Press's Twitter accounts, sending out a fake tweet about an attack at the White House. A U.S.
3: defense official tells CNN of a massive cyber attack on the U.S. Navy's computer network, a breach so severe it took at least two months to purge the hack.
2: New Zealand got a hint of its involvement in cyber conflict in the lead-up to the general election, when details of Project Cortex and Speargun were revealed. At the time, the focus was on whether those documents suggested the Government Communications Security Bureau, or GCSB, was spying on New Zealanders. But for computer security experts, they provided a window into the usually opaque world of cyber conflict. I'm William Ray, and this Insight investigates how computer code is being used as a weapon.
1: Okay, so this organisation has these IP addresses here, so that's a slash 24, that's 256 IP addresses. It's their own IP address range, and so that means they run the web server internally within the organisation. Mm-hmm. So that means that if we attack the web server, um, there's a likelihood that that would be a stepping stone into the, into the internet, into the internal network of this organisation. So let's just have a wee look at the web server
2: Daniel Ayers makes his living testing the security of computer systems both in government and the private sector. Part of that job involves
1: researching threats to computer networks, which he says now includes cyber war. I think we are now in the age of cyber war and that it's been kept from us. We've known for a long time that there's a possibility that war could be waged by and between computers. There was a very famous movie in the early 1980s on exactly that subject called War Games. So the concept isn't new, but I think what people don't widely recognise is how far down that track we have gone. One of the examples I would point to is the virus called Stuxnet, which was unleashed in Iran as a cyber weapon that was used to damage centrifuges in the Iran Nuclear Enrichment Programme. It's widely believed, and I suspect it may have even been confirmed, that it was created by the United States and Israel as a weapon. That says to me that we are absolutely in the age now where people are doing this computer stuff for the purposes of advancing military objectives. A researcher at George Washington University, Dr Alan Friedman, has
2: recently written a book, Cybersecurity and Cyberwar, What Everyone Needs to Know, which gives several examples of cyber weapons being used in international conflicts.
4: There was, in 2008, an attack against the government networks, um, the civilian networks in Estonia, uh, that has been loosely linked to Russian partisans. Uh, There's strong belief that the government is behind that, was behind that a little bit. Uh, You might think of that as a cyber embassy storming, where you have some political actors sort of encouraging the mob and and particularly powerful actors. And of course, there's the Stuxnet attack, which was a disruption of the Iranian nuclear program through uh, very carefully designed malware, which sort of disrupted the Iranian attempt to enrich uranium while uh, making it look like the computers were functioning normally.
2: Yeah, that attack was interesting, wasn't it? Because it didn't just like delete data or something like that. It made the centrifuges in the enrichment plant spin too quickly and actually physically broke them.
4: That's an important line to acknowledge. This line that we've always maintained uh, that there's a distinction between the virtual and the real world is useful. But we have to remember that computers, at the end of the day, are useful to do things. And so when it comes to disrupting things, uh, yes, that uh, crossed the line.
2: There are many more examples of suspected cyber attacks between nations. It's been claimed Israel used a cyber weapon to disable Syrian air defences so it could bomb a secret nuclear reactor in 2007. A year later, during Russia's invasion of Georgia, Georgian government and news websites were taken down by a Distributed Denial of Service, or DDoS, attack, believed to have been launched by the Russian military. And in the lead-up to its 2004 invasion of Iraq, it's thought the United States hacked into the Iraqi military network so it could send emails telling officers how to surrender to US-led forces. The United States is quite open about its use of the Internet for military purposes, For example, in this U.S. Air Force recruiting ad, which starts with a shot of the Pentagon. This building will be attacked three million times today. Who is going to protect it?
3: Meet Staff Sergeant Lee Jones, Air Force Cyber Command. A member of America's
2: only Cyber Command, protecting us from millions of cyber threats every day. It takes Air Force technology to defend America in a changing world. Learn more about our changing world at airforce.com. Three million attacks a day might sound like a massive exaggeration, but Alan Friedman says a quirk of cyber warfare is that it's much easier to launch an attack than to block one.
4: Defence is really hard in this space. It is a lot like defence from terrorism in that you have just a lot of basic civilian infrastructure that's not designed to be protected. And modern, Western, highly industrialised or even post-industrial societies are really dependent on information systems. We're dependent on the information that's in those systems, and we're dependent on access to those systems. And if people disrupt uh, our access to the system, they just turn them off, or even more scary, they, they sort of change the numbers in the system. Uh, well, we all trust our computers. Who among us hasn't faced the, well, I'm sorry, the computer says X, and, and all of a sudden we're stuck? In the worst-case scenario,
2: the impact of a full-scale cyber war could be devastating. A cyber weapon's already been used to create the biggest non-nuclear explosion in history. In 2004, a memoir by an advisor to the former U.S. president, Ronald Reagan, revealed that during the Cold War, the CIA tricked the Soviet Union into stealing booby-trapped software to run a natural gas pipeline in Siberia. When that software was activated, the pipeline detonated with the force of three kilotons of TNT. So if a foreign nation wanted to target New Zealand with a sophisticated cyber attack, could it be stopped? Daniel Ayers doesn't think so.
1: If we came under a coordinated, determined cyber attack from what you might call a state-sponsored actor so that might be a hostile intelligence agency, then I don't believe that we would be able to, at the moment, defend ourselves against that. Now, that is not necessarily necessarily a scenario where they're trying to turn off the lights and shut the whole country down and whatever. Often the more more sophisticated attacks are attacks you don't notice. One reason for people to target us, for example, is everyone knows that we are a junior member of the Five Eyes Alliance, and we are seen as fairly weak and non-threatening. And so it's conceivable that somebody might attack New Zealand, not because they're especially interested in New Zealand, but we may be seen as a way into that larger intelligence community.
2: But Alan Friedman says the risk of that kind of attack actually happening needs to be kept in perspective.
4: War is politics through other mechanisms. So we're only looking at a set of actions where someone wants to attack me, they want to hurt me, but they don't want me to know it's them. Well, that doesn't accomplish very much. I'm not saying that will never happen, but it's a relatively small set of political circumstances. Now we have to say, well, they not only have to do that, but they have to be technically sophisticated enough to not leave any traces. And as we've learned, that's much harder. So, for example, uh, Stuxnet, The code from Stuxnet strongly implicated either the United States or Israel. Then we found out from just a newspaper report that it was probably the United States. So now I have to be able to attack you, want to attack you without you knowing that it was me, and also be able to attack you without leaving any indication on any of my communication networks that you might be listening in on that it was me. I'm not saying that it's impossible. These things do happen from time to time. But I I think it's a much smaller set of international conflict than what we generally are worried about.
2: Of course, nation-versus-nation cyber war isn't the only threat to cybersecurity. Corporations hack each other to carry out industrial espionage, organised criminal groups steal data to extort payments, while the rise of hacktivism, hacking for political purposes, has also been seen with groups like
5: Anonymous. We are anonymous. We are legion. We do not forgive. We do not forget. New Zealand government, you should have expected us.
2: Daniel Ayers says no matter who's behind a cyber attack, ordinary internet users can end up as collateral damage, such as when hackers seize control of their computers to set up what's known as a botnet, which then has the combined power to attack websites.
1: Hostile states or cyber criminals may be carrying out bulk attacks on sections of the internet and they don't care who they attack (laughs) they just want to get the largest number of computers in their botnet so that they have the largest internet resource that they can then use to carry out an attack against somebody else and then the question arises well okay why should you care about that how does that affect you well it means that someone's taken control of your computer it means that there may be stuff on your computer that you don't have control of and might be logging your keystrokes to steal your passwords and various other things. It might mean that your internet bill becomes very large because your computer is now spending its time attacking somebody on the other side of the world. It might mean that you find it difficult to send email to people because you now have a bad reputation on the internet and because you've been sending spam, for example. And so your your ability to carry out your normal business or personal activities might be affected. It's possible hundreds of
2: thousands of New Zealanders have already been pawns in a cyber attack, When the telecommunications company Spark suffered a major internet outage in September, suggestions emerged that it was linked to cyber attacks overseas. The GCSB refused to comment on those concerns, and Spark's IT manager, Jason Mangan, says his company can't say for sure if its
5: outage was linked to the conflict in Ukraine or not. We don't know. We know that at least the reflective attack that we saw was targeting uh, Eastern Europe domains. And so that's what we saw. Whether that was the end target or perhaps that was just another stop on the route, we're unsure.
2: Do you know specifically what websites were being targeted?
5: We have the URLs of the websites that were being targeted. I won't mention those here, but they were um, Eastern Europe, uh, European um, web addresses. The organisation responsible
2: for protecting sensitive government data from cyber attack is the GCSB. Its director, Ian Fletcher, says the number of reported attacks on government and corporate systems is rising by 60% every year. That reflects the kind of numbers that are reported to
3: uh, the National Cybersecurity Centre, which is um, part of GCSB, but also that reflects the kind of numbers that you see in other advanced economies around the world. And actually, the raw numbers are kind of only part of the story. What we're also seeing from some of the aggregate numbers is a combination of a rise in the number of reported Cybersecurity incidents and a clear rise in the cost of dealing with them mm. and so more and bigger, at least in terms of the consequences seems to be a trend which we and uh, and the rest of the developed world are seeing and that cost is you know is the cost of protection, the cost of remedy, and you know sometimes the cost of rebuilding or cleaning up um, it doesn 't begin to Uh, put a, a dollar figure on the
2: reputational cost, the brand damage that can be done. So what's being done to defend New Zealand from cyber attacks? Paul Ash is the director of the National Cyber Policy Office which was set up two years ago to advise the government and the private sector on cyber security and is part of the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet.
6: One of the things that we found when we were first established was that the awareness of cyber security in New Zealand was relatively low. There's been a lot of work done over the last two years by Connect Smart partners in the private sector but also the likes of the National Cyber Security Centre the folk at DIA in the government space but also in the anti-spam area uh, and the police and organisations like NetSafe and the New Zealand Internet Task Force to really try and lift public awareness um, of the cyber security problem and that I think is is shifting. As to how far that's managed to translate into action um, we're starting to see signs that boards and others are really um, getting their head around this. When you say it wasn't um, you know, it was quite a low level even in 2012. I mean, that's quite late to come to the party in terms of cybersecurity, isn't it? Yeah, I don't think that's unusual, though. If you look across most economies, one of the biggest challenges is actually helping people who may be victims of cybersecurity, from, from individuals right the way through to large organisations, both to understand and, and, and break the risks into manageable elements and then to work out how to respond to it and build in resilience to their systems. But the Labour Party's IT spokesperson,
2: Claire Curran, has a more critical view of government computer security.
0: There's been a significant series of data breaches right across government for the last four or five years. There was the Ministry of Social Development kiosk breaches, there's been breaches in immigration, Quite a significant breach of the Ministry of Justice website. There's enough of these breaches to raise serious issues about the uh, systemic or the lack of systemic approach to IT security and risk identification across government.
2: The security gaps at the Ministry of Social Development kiosks, which allowed people to access sensitive information from computers at work and income offices, sparked a review of all publicly accessible government computer systems. That review found 12 out of 215 systems had security flaws and almost three-quarters of the agencies surveyed lacked comprehensive security policies and procedures. Two years later, the Government Chief Technology Officer, Tim Ockleshaw, says things have improved.
5: Certainly that review, which was done in late 2012, showed us a couple of things. Firstly, risk management and security management awareness at senior executive levels in organisations was not where it needed to be. Probably secondly, um, there certainly was work to do. That that review covered 70 organisations and, and uh, all of their publicly-facing systems and uh, did reveal some shortcomings which have been remediated. And probably the third thing is public service agencies strive to provide good, accessible, user-friendly public services, uh, obviously and you know we need to strike the right balance between usability and accessibility and appropriate security. And I would say in a number of uh, small number of organisations that balance was just not right. But Claire Curran
2: says there are still significant problems in government IT security and she's particularly concerned about the Department of Internal Affairs.
0: Cybersecurity across the Department of Internal Affairs has been described to me as being grossly negligent. Applications expired on many computers, licences run out, not being renewed, um, and patching that's being done on an ad hoc, afterthought way. So all this adds up to a whole set of vulnerabilities on many, many computers. This is of major concern for the public of New Zealand to think that the government agency charged with managing risk and security right across government is actually not able to manage its own risk. Tim
2: Ockleshaw rejects her concerns.
5: No, I don't agree with any of that. I don't accept that at all. DIA has good, robust security processes in place. Our patching of systems is up to date. Our migration off Windows XP has been completed. We don't have
2: those problems at all. Claire Curran believes the lack of a mandatory standard is part of the cause of what she thinks is lax security in government systems. The GCSB has a government information security manual which agencies are supposed to follow, but it isn't compulsory. In 2012, only 3% of agencies had assessed whether they complied with that standard or not. Paul Ash says his office has nearly completed a new cybersecurity
6: strategy to address those concerns. What we'd expect to see, I think, is a consolidation of the existing effort, but with a final level of detail around the number of agencies that are involved and the roles they play a significant uptick in public-private engagement, so government agencies learning to work in new ways with private sector partners who are involved in this area. We also, I think, would expect we're going to need to see a sort of net lift in effort, not just from government, though that's the the key thing here, but from some of those private sector partners and others on tackling this problem together.
2: But Daniel Ayres says good policies alone won't close the gaps he sees when he tests government networks. He thinks public sector IT departments need more money.
1: I know IT departments who, in my view, are under-resourced for the level of work that they currently have to do. And because their management is trying to operate a sinking lid policy on the budget, they're faced with losing another staff member, which means that they're even in an even worse position. And I am concerned that you know, we're going to see more instances of, for example, the WINS kiosk problem. Or the fairly widely cited problem in 2007 with the Waikato DHB and the conficate worm which pretty much killed their network for quite an extended period of time. And when you have that happening in a hospital you have to start wondering what impact that has on things we care about such as people's health.
2: Concerns about government cybersecurity are not unique to New Zealand. Dr. Alan Friedman says countries around the world are struggling to design defenses against cyber attacks, and part of the difficulty is the broad range of threats they face.
4: One of the challenges when we talk about cybersecurity is it takes a variety of, of, of threats and puts them together. So if I'm worried about someone attacking my country with an inter- intercontinental ballistic missile, And I'm also worried about someone shooting me. Those are slightly related in that both of them involve gases expelled at great speed, leading to death coming towards me quickly. But that's about all they have in common.
2: According to the government, New Zealand's defence to attacks at the intercontinental ballistic missile end of the cyber spectrum is Project Cortex. A week before the general election, the Prime Minister, John Key, revealed the existence of Cortex in an attempt to disprove accusations from the NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden that the GCSB was collecting metadata of New Zealanders. In an interview with TVNZ's Q&A programme a day after that revelation, Mr Key explained how Cortex came to be. Back in 2011, I can't go into the companies, but two major New Zealand companies were subjected to a major cyber attack. The GCSB came to me and said, we are increasingly worried about the cyber threats against New Zealand agencies and against New Zealand companies. So by about March of 2012, they went away,
5: uh, worked, uh, said, look, we want to work up a proposal for you. And so we said, yep, go away and work on a business case looking at that. What we actually did was we created a cyber protection program for individual entities, bespoke entities.
2: Ian Fletcher says Cortex is intended to protect the country's most important computer systems from threats they couldn't deal with on their own. We're assuming that government departments
3: and significant companies in New Zealand run good levels of commercial firewalls, internet protection, authentication, data management and so on. We're then conscious that they face so-called advanced persistent threats. This is the kind of really advanced threat that even well-managed commercial standard won't beat. Governments come to the view that it would be right for GCSB to step out and offer a kind of top-up service to a number of government organisations and a number of private organisations. Those are organisations which we've chosen to talk to on the basis of the significance they play in New Zealand's national life. We do it with them on the basis of their thoroughly informed consent. It's all done in a really kind of open way. That said, we don't talk about the individual details of who we are working with, and we certainly don't talk about the individual details. of What we're doing to do that would defeat the fundamental objective of the exercise, which is to make their systems safer than would otherwise be the
2: case. But how does the GCSB know about these advanced threats which Cortex is intended to counter? Daniel Ayres suspects it's linked to the vast metadata collection programme exposed by the NSA whistleblower
1: Edward Snowden. If you're surveilling what's happening on the internet, yes, you can use that as a tool for detecting crime and combating terrorism and finding out uh, what your ex-girlfriend's doing or all of those things, but you can also use it as a tool to find out what traffic is going across the internet and the chances are very good that the intelligence agencies will be able to look at this and go, oh yep, that's this particular vulnerability that we know that that country has used plenty of times before, or, oh, that's a publicly known vulnerability that somebody's trying to exploit, or, ooh, haven't seen that one before. Wonder what that is. And so surveillance provides them with the opportunity to do that.
2: The GCSB wouldn't comment on Mr Eyre's theory, Nor would Ian Fletcher say if New Zealand has the capacity to launch cyber attacks of its own. I wouldn't, um, uh, as you would expect,
3: um, be able to answer that question either way.
2: Well, in detail, I mean, the the army can't say, you know, how it uses its tanks to attack the enemy, but it can say that it has tanks. It can, um, but, uh, and uh, and, uh, they can certainly be seen
3: but uh, we're in a position where um, uh, either confirming or denying a capability would be a step um, that we really wouldn't be um, um, prepared to contemplate right now.
2: That answer isn't good enough for the Green Party's IT spokesperson, Kennedy Graham, who wants the GCSB shut down and for New Zealand to campaign for international laws to govern cyber conflict. He says this country shouldn't be launching cyber attacks, even if others are.
5: I used to do consultancy work for the United Nations in New York in political and security council affairs, and the aggressive intrusion on cyberspace in New York pertaining around the United Nations was alive and well, and of course between major capitals it's there as well. That is not a justification or a reason for New Zealand to get in that business in terms of offensive activity. Yeah, we live in a tough world, But the way over the long term and medium term to combat that and make the world a more decent place is to extend that transparency and that accountability.
1: Daniel
2: Ayres also thinks more
1: transparency is needed. A degree of secrecy is required for the protection of the country and the operation of our intelligence services. So you just can't do this in the full sunlight. But by the same token, I think they are being more secretive than they uh, need to be. I mean, there are private citizens in New Zealand that have the capability to carry out hacking. So I couldn't fathom why uh, there would be any prejudice to the security or defence of New Zealand for the GCSB confirming that they have that capability.
2: Both Mr Ayres and Kennedy Graham point out that because the GCSB won't disclose if it has the ability to launch a cyber attack... New Zealanders don't get a chance to weigh in on whether they think launching such an attack is in the country's best interest. The minister responsible for the GCSB, Christopher Finlayson, responded to those concerns with the following statement. The work of the GCSB cannot be talked about in detail because of a need to protect its
3: capabilities and areas of focus from adversaries. Any activities that the GCSB
2: undertakes must be lawful. There is a strong oversight to ensure this. The work of the GCSB in cybersecurity is only likely to increase in coming years. Ian Fletcher says technological progress is making cyber attacks easier and cheaper, meaning that sophisticated malware like Stuxnet will soon be available not just to powerful nation states, but ordinary criminals and corporations as well. I'm William Ray, and that's Insight for this week. If you'd like to contact us, you can send an email to insight at
5: radioNZ.co.nz or send a tweet at rnz underscore insight.